Now I'll read Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you even for genealogies. Thank you for preserving your word for us and passing it down through the ages that we can have it this morning read to us in a language that we understand, but give us now more than physical hearing and understanding. Would you grant to us spiritual understanding by your spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you comfort us and establish us, build us up in your word. Would you help me, O God, help me, your servant. Keep me from error, and may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's my family's tradition when we're home and able to, which is most of the time, but... It's our tradition to get our Christmas tree 
the day after Thanksgiving and then spend that Saturday getting it all decorated as well as the rest of the house ready to go. So after visiting a couple of tree farms, a couple of tree farms on Friday, we finally found the perfect tree for us, the perfect one. It was a tall, lush, I believe a Fraser fir, if you're interested. That night, Megan and I wrestled with it and got it into the house and got it all set up in its stand. And then on Saturday morning, we put on the Christmas music and we festively went to work adding the lights, ornaments, and garland with only the minimal amounts of arguing. And when we were all done, we stepped back, right, to admire our masterpiece, Then one of us, one of the four of us, I don't remember who it was now, asked the question. The question that has long plagued the layman family Christmas tree tradition. Is the tree leaning? It looks, the tree looks like it's leaning to the left. All of a sudden, we all become like art enthusiasts at a museum, right? We begin circling the great room, all looking at the tree, eyeing it from different angles. Even, I even went up onto the catwalk above and looked down, trying to find out, is it, is it straight? Is it crooked? And we're all making different cases at different times. Yeah, if you look at it from this way, it's crooked. If you look at it from over here, it's straight. But argue all we want, and even ask a friend who came by yesterday evening, argue all we want. The truth was inevitable. The tree was leaning. So what followed was nothing less than madness. Megan is fighting to hold up this really heavy tree, to hold it upright while I climbed underneath it like a mechanic under a car, right? And I'm I'm messing with the eight screws and the thing holding it. I'm like, well, shift it this way, and I'm tightening it this way and that way. And then we were like, okay, we got it. We'd step back and go, oh, wait, now it's leaning the other direction. And I think that only happened three times, but it felt like 20, okay? Finally, we just gave up. Finally, we just gave up, and we came to a conclusion. The tree is leaning because the tree's actually crooked. You see, about two-thirds the way up this, it's somewhere between 10 and 12 feet, but about two-thirds up, the trunk takes a turn, So try as hard as we may to straighten this tree. This is our tree now. This is our crooked Christmas tree. We shouldn't be surprised. We tell ourselves all the time since we started getting real trees, it's a real tree, right? It's real. It comes with real imperfections. It's actually a tree. It's a lot like a lot of our very own family trees. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, which I just read, as well as Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, which I would encourage you to just kind of put a finger there. These passages contain the genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ, his earthly family trees. We know he's the eternal son of God, but he came to earth, he took on flesh, he was born of the Virgin Mary. These genealogies represent his earthly family trees. And like most recorded genealogies of this time, they are constructed with a purpose. They're not meant to be exhaustive, right? They're 
strategically constructed with a purpose. They're constructed to establish a formal and legal familial tie. And while we might be tempted to hurriedly rush over these lists of names or even skip these sections altogether, doing so causes us to miss something very, very important. It causes us to miss something even very unexpected. These trees aren't perfect trees either. These trees are crooked. But if we take a moment and if we step back and admire their imperfections, just like I was finally, finally able to do with my Christmas tree last night, I think we will all be led to the same conclusion. Thankfulness to and hope in God. Thankfulness to God and hope in God. That's where we're going this morning. So let's start by looking at the unique structures, the unique structures of these two family trees. If you're taking notes, this is going to be the first of our three points this morning, I was tempted to have, you know, like 42 points, right? Because there's 42 names listed here, but we don't have that kind of time, do we? So we're going to have three points. Our first point, the unique structure of these family trees. As I said just a, a minute ago, these family trees were constructed with the purpose of establishing formal and legal familial ties. And because Matthew and Luke were originally writing their gospel accounts to different audiences. The structures, if you're familiar with Luke's, they look different. They look different. Let me explain. So Matthew is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Okay, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. We know this because if we take the material that is unique to Matthew, that is the things that he includes that are not shared in Mark and in Luke and even in John's gospel accounts, if we take the stuff that's unique just to Matthew, we find that this material deals primarily with the application of Old Testament prophecy to Jesus' claims of being the Messiah. So it's not surprising then to see that the family tree that Matthew constructs is centered around specific covenant promises related to the coming Messiah. So notice where Matthew starts his genealogy. Look in verse 2. He starts it with Abraham. So if you were to go back to Genesis, particularly go to Genesis 17, you'll find that God established a covenant. He establishes his covenant with Abraham, and he makes a promise to Abraham that this covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant with his descendants with his offspring, with his seed throughout all their generations. And it's going to be a covenant of both land, a land that he's giving to him, but also an offspring, nations, right? Peoples, but ultimately an offspring that he's giving to him. Matthew then, 
after he makes this start with Abraham, he then continues through Abraham's descendants to where? There's a pause, a natural pause in verse 6 to King David. You might remember, think back, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. He makes a covenant with him. He promises David that one from his line would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. That he would always have one upon the throne of Israel, upon the throne of Judah forever. However, what happens? The line of kings in Judah ended when the people were taken away into Babylonian captivity, which is the next thing that Matthew highlights in verses 11 and 12. That's his next pause. But he continues, though. He continues the line until he gets from the time of the Babylonian captivity all the way to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. From Abraham to David to Joseph. In doing this, Matthew is establishing formal and legal ties, making this connection connecting Jesus to Abraham, right, through Joseph and David. Thus, from an earthly perspective, from anyone reading this account, showing that Jesus is the rightful heir, he has a a legal and a formal claim to David's throne, and that he's also the promised offspring or seed of Abraham. Of course, many have fought over the names that are listed here. They've actually fought more over the names that are omitted from this list. But it's very clear from verse 17 that Matthew's structure is establishing his overall point. It's very common in this day not to include every single name, but to structure these to make bigger points. You see, he breaks the generations into three sets of 14. Again, I'm not really great at math. But I believe that three sets of 14 is the same as breaking them into six sets of seven. Is that right, math people? Yeah. Six sets of seven. Notice that Jesus arrives as the seventh set. The genealogy of Jesus, right? He arrives as the fulfillment. This genealogy comes to its ultimate fulfillment. It's an exclamation point to Matthew's greater purpose which is to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Matthew wants his readers, his original audience, he wants us to know that God has not forsaken his promises. God is fulfilling them in the person and work of Jesus, born in Nazareth to Joseph and Mary, son of God and son of man. Now Luke's genealogy, if you turn over There, to Luke chapter 3, Luke's genealogy is entirely different. Okay, He begins in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Metat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. I'm not going to read through all these. He goes through, go down to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke's genealogy is entirely different. Structure, names, it's all different. Luke, remember, Luke is not one 
of the 12 disciples. He's rather a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a different original audience. His original audience is different. Something made clear when you look at the material that's unique to his account. You see, Luke is writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And so his emphasis is on the universality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Luke wants his audience to know that Jesus is not simply the savior of the Jews, but he's also the savior of the Gentiles as well. He wants them to know that the kingdom of God is not confined to the geographic borders of Israel, but is for every tribe, is for every tongue, is for every nation, it's for every people on the earth. So it's not surprising then to see that Luke's family tree, though it mentions both Abraham and David, it goes further than them. In fact, if you look at verse 34, it goes from Abraham back to Noah. See Noah mentioned there in verse 36. You can even see back to Seth in verse 38. And then as we've already seen to Adam in verse 38. Notice what Luke calls Adam, the son of God. In his commentary on Luke, R.C. Sproul makes a great case that Luke here is highlighting the truth that Jesus is, just as we sang earlier, the true and better Adam. That Jesus is the second Adam, the one who reversed the curse, the one who crushed the serpent's head, the one who secured redemption, swinging wide open the gates of heaven for all types of people bringing to fruition what Paul states in Galatians 3, 25 through 29. You can turn there with me. I'm going to read it. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So we see then that the unique structures of these family trees, Matthew's fashioned around God's covenant promises to the people of Israel, and, and Luke's formed around how these promises extend beyond the Jews and to the Gentiles as well. We see that in the structure. Now I want us to take a moment and consider a couple of unexpected surprises found in these family trees. That's our second point this morning, the unexpected surprises in these family trees. If you've ever constructed a family tree, you know that it's messy business. My daughter did one recently for her sixth grade class, and uh, I had a lot of it done, but of course, she needs to do it on her own, right? And admittedly, I was a little bit nervous the whole time. So what she wanted to do was trace dad's back to the Reformation time. 
Uh, and so she was going through and she would come across certain people and she'd say, Dad, tell me about this person. I'd be like, you know, biting on my nails because I've done a lot of research on this. And so there's some things that I just didn't really want her to know, right? And there were other things I hope she didn't find out by clicking on certain things on Ancestry, right? And reading certain articles or maybe notes that other people had made. And there were some things that I was just like, this is us. This is who we are. It's discovery. A lot of it's wonderful and good. Some of it is painful, even scary at times. Well, much has been made of Matthew's genealogy, and particularly its surprises, much like our own has lots of surprises. Especially, there's been a lot made about the women that he includes. And I believe that that is right, rightly so, that attention is drawn to that. It wasn't typical in Matthew's day to list women in such formal and legal family trees. So it's absolutely wonderful that he does. If you look, you'll see in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1, you'll see Tamar. In verse 5, you'll see both Rahab and Ruth. In verse 6, you'll see the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. And of course, in verse 16, you'll see Mary. Well, perhaps even more surprising, it is surprising that he includes the name of these women here, but it's actually, I think, more surprising that he chooses these rather than others. That he doesn't choose Sarah, that he doesn't choose Rebecca or Deborah or Abigail or maybe some others that might come to mind. So we ask the question, as many commentators and pastors do, why these women? Of course, you've probably all heard sermons on this, and you've heard good things and likely bad things, and we could speak of many things, uh, from righteous behavior to sinful behavior, from faithfulness to unfaithfulness, from sins specifically that they committed to, probably more rightly, specifically sins committed against them. But I think that we can't lose focus, and what's what I want to do in my limited amount of time, is for us not to lose focus of actually what's most important about them being included here. And it's this. Even though Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience with a distinct purpose of proving Jesus to be the promised Old Testament Messiah, he still doesn't want God's people to lose focus on the reality that Luke is highlighting over in his genealogy. And it's this, that Jesus is the Savior of all peoples. Of Jews and Gentiles. There's Gentiles included here. Male and female. Slave and free. The unexpected, surprising inclusion of these women would underscore this point greatly. And rather than majoring on the minors, we should major on the major. Matthew hasn't forgotten that point. And his focus is that he shines a bright light on it. It says, look what God has done. Look what God has done in Jesus. But we also shouldn't miss another unexpected surprise about all the people listed in both genealogies. And this is not probably not going to feel like a surprise to you. You ready? They're all sinners. All of them. They're all sinners. Some are even very notorious Sinners. You know, think about this. If you were selecting names to establish a family tree, you might want to do what I wanted to do with my daughter, right? No, let's just skip over those. Let's go to these. These are the good ones. 
right? You'd want to pick and choose which ones you want to include. Might you be tempted to mention another one of Jacob's sons beside Judah? You know, Judah, who fathered Perez and Zerah, who is named there in verse 3. He did it in a very shameful way with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's also mentioned in verse 3. If you don't know this story, you can read Genesis 38 today. Or perhaps you might be tempted to pass over evil kings like Joram, Ahaz, Amos, and Manasseh. Manasseh? Kings that disobeyed God? And led the people into apostasy? I mean, wouldn't you even be remotely tempted to clean things up just a little bit? I mean, as you're writing this, might you even cringe when you think about the behavior of some of the best names on this list? Abraham, who lied to Pharaoh about Sarah. Jacob, who deceived his father Isaac to get a blessing. David, who, I mean, literally was just a mess at times. And on and on we could go. But honestly, where would we stop? Where would we stop? If you take both family trees into account, we see that they are both riddled with sinners. Crooked branches alike. From Adam all the way to Mary. From Adam to Mary. Each name And each genealogy shares this one thing in common. Each one of them is a sinner. And as such, each one of them also shares something else in common as well. They share a great need for a great Savior. For the one who is ultimately revealed in each one of these genealogies, each family tree. You see, Matthew and Luke are surprisingly, brutally honest about this human family that's been created by God. They hold up both the respectable and the unrespectable family members alike. And they do so because they're both making the exact same point. They may have different focus, but it's the same point. Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus Christ came for sinners. He came not for the perfect tree. He came for the crooked tree. So in reality, we could say that the whole tree is an unexpected surprise. But it's an unexpected surprise that will lead us to our third and final point this morning. The undeniable salvation from these family trees. The undeniable salvation from these family trees. J.C. Ryle said it best when he was commenting on Matthew 1. He said this, Grace does not run in families. Grace does not run in families. He continues in quotes from John 1. Those that are born again are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, Jesus Christ came into the world to save his people. He came to mend the crooked branches of family trees. He came to graft other branches in together, to actually take these family trees and graft them in to his tree. He came to redeem sinful and shameful genealogies. Jesus came to take something broken, And make it all together 
beautiful. Is this not what we celebrate during the season of Advent? As we set our attention upon the historical reality of long seasons of waiting and anticipation, do we not celebrate the truth that the Son of God has finally come? That he left the glories of heaven to take on flesh, becoming like us in every way, except without sin, of course. Doing that so he can free us from the curse of sin and death. Friends, I want you to, if you're taking notes, to write this down. The undeniable salvation from these family trees is not just that Jesus took on individual flesh. It's not just that. But then in taking on that flesh in Bethlehem, there in that manger, the son of Joseph and Mary, the descendant from David and Abraham, Noah and Adam, Jesus has looked upon this family tree and he's owned it as his family tree. That's the undeniable salvation. He has looked upon the family tree and he's owned it as his own. Israel's history is his history. These genealogies listed here with all of their marks of sin and failure are the genealogies of the Son of God, the true vine, who is the Savior and sustainer of each and every branch. And yeah, this tree, this tree is going to have earthly branches that are undoubtedly going to be pruned away and they're going to be cast off. But each and every one, each and every one of those pieces tell an important part of the story. Not their story, not our story. They tell Christ's story. His the glory. Christ's story of redemption. So here's what I tried to purpose to do last night. When I see, and you can do this too if you come over to my house, which I hope you do. When you see, when I see that crooked Christmas tree sitting in my living room, it's going to drive me crazy because I'm like that. I'm forever going to want to go in there and try to fiddle with it. I'm going to be tempted to do that, right? Okay, I have to admit. I'm even half tempted right now to go home and just chuck it, right? And go get another one, right? Maybe finally uh, get one that's perfectly straight out of a box. Just to get something that in my mind is better altogether. But here's what I'm purposing to do, and I'm telling you for accountability. Are you ready? When I look at it, I want to smile. I want to be thankful. For it's a reminder that Jesus came for trees just like that one. Jesus came for crooked trees. Like the one in my living room. Like me. I was thinking too that we should probably keep this in mind especially when we spend so much time with family over the coming weeks. I recognize that many of us struggle with broken relationships. We struggle with sinful patterns and even hostile interactions as we gather with those who are in our family tree. I know how hard that is. I do. I know how hard it is. But I want to encourage you here as we come to a close. By asking a couple of questions, in the end, aren't we all the same, though? In the end, aren't we all the same? Don't we all share the same need as the need of the ones we read about here? A great need for a great Savior 
Don't we all share that? We know that saving grace doesn't run in families. It's supernatural. It's a supernaturally given gift by God's grace. We know that. We know it's a miracle of God that anyone would believe, that anyone would have their lives changed, that reconciliation could happen, that repentance, faith, restoration to God and to others, all of these things are wonderful works of grace. And since we know that, and so since we've had our own branches mended by a faithful Savior, why would we ever give up hope that he won't also do the same mending work in someone else as well? Why would we ever give up hope? I always try to remind myself, look what he did for me. I know he can do it for you as well. So I want to challenge you to commit yourself to praying. Commit yourself to pray for God to intercede in wonderfully powerful and miraculous ways. To do far more abundantly beyond what you could ask, think, or imagine as it comes to your wonderfully, perfectly straight tree. No. As you think about all those interactions that God would move mightily, just as he has moved mightily in you. And so let us never forget that Jesus indeed came for crooked trees. And for that, we can be thankful and we can be hopeful. Amen and amen.